Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattle Customer 139. So glad you could join me today. Uh, today's guest is Todd Davis. He'll be here in just a little bit. But before I begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Leave reviews wherever you're watching this. Leave stars on iTunes and well, if they're reviews on Amazon, I don't know, whatever you're going to do, click something to make sure you tell the computers that you like this because then they'll show it to more people. Then we get more poetry spread all over the place, which is what we always want to try to do. I would like to begin with the, um, with the uh, Sunday news poem for Poets Respond. And today's poet couldn't be here. It's a Nigerian poet, um, Ayukunle Samuel Batiku. But this is A River of Sound. And... Uh, this poem was inspired by the the speech that Vladimir Zelensky gave at the Grammys last weekend um, on sound. He said, um, what is more opposite to music? The silence, the dead silence, talking about the silence of um, of Ukraine during the war. And uh, this was, was Ayukunle's response to it. I'll put this on screen right here. This is a river of sounds. A river of sounds. What is more opposite to music? The silence. The dead silence. Volodymyr Zelensky. At the river, I teach my little sister the cadence of water. Our steeped feet send reverberations across its bright and fluent body, spurring the dance of atoms, which leap into crests and dip into troughs like an electrocardiograph within the music the art makes. The music the art makes, the far-reaching sounds, encompassing the crest and trough, the elevation and depression. As when the body erupts into a song at the height of bliss and in the depth of grief, pins and monodies depicting this, consider how songs are the bodies warming mechanism, like shivers in the wake of a flu, waves keeping the river in motion against the pressing frostiness of the world. The pressing frostiness of the world is felt in a clinic in Butcher, where a girl lies suspended between year and the year after by a gunshot wound, the encroaching gloom slowly lifting in the swaddling warmth of a lullaby from my mother's lips and an electrocardiograph reading the steady rhythm of her heart. The steady rhythm of her heart is what her mother holds on to. It's music, the promise of a river holding neither ruin nor the dead, but the dance of waves over a vivid sky. There, the little girl sings and fiddles again her beloved violin. There, their goofers gush out or restrainedly, bright and fluent enough to drown the dead silence of mass graves clustered in the distance. And once again, that was Ayukunle Samuel Patiku with A River of Sounds. And that, that form, um, a poem, the, the repetition, I asked over on, because I didn't know what it was called. I asked over on my, my Facebook page, 
um, what what that might be called. And uh, we had two responses. So the rhetorical trope is called anadiplosis, which can be defined as a figure in rhetoric and poetry consisting in the repetition at the beginning of a line or clause of the last word or words preceding it. And then uh, Josh Williams, who might be here watching right now, says this is a stanzaic chain verse is the form that that was. And a really excellent example of that and a really moving poem. Uh, we really enjoyed that. So thanks so much for sharing that. And, uh, and two, to uh, the people who let me know what it was called, because I didn't. And uh, now let's go back in time a little bit before we get to the main guest. And let's look at a poem from uh, Rattle's past in Poetry Spawn. This is uh, seven years ago, April 5th, 2015. Uh, this is Jacqueline Holton's poem, The Poetry Lesson. And I thought this would be a good poem um, just in general. I love this poem. And, and good to remember Steve Cowett, the uh, poet who this is written after. He was a well-known poetry teacher and, and poet living in the San Diego area who did a lot of workshops and taught a lot of that, that whole San Diego poetry community. Um, uh, Steve Cowett was... Uh, the, the poet responsible for, for a lot of that, that vibrance down there. And he passed away uh, seven years ago this week, April 2nd, 2015. And this is a poem that Jacqueline Holton wrote for him. So let's take a listen to this one, The Poetry Lesson by uh, Jacqueline Holton. The Poetry Lesson. For Steve Cowett, June 30th, 1938 to April 2nd, 2015. Steal a line from a great poem, because the best poets don't pay homage, that word like the godly he, spelled with a capital H, they take as if the whole world was their smorgasbord. Yes, that's what it felt like on that day we hiked in the Cuyamacas, and all of nature seemed to be slyly winking as it sent us bluebird after bluebird, wild turkey, deer, and that wounded lizard we found on the path, the one you gently moved aside with a stick as you swore to the squeamish among us that its torn-off tail would regenerate itself in a week. Our group was mostly poetry students, and you, winking back, as if you had summoned the gods, arranged for a lesson so perfect it would be impossible not to write a poem. So this is mine the one I'm trying to shape from your teachings, the day after learning you've gone. Your books spread out over my cluttered desk. That's another one of your tricks. Include in your poem a reference to the writing of it, like a camera pulling back to reveal the soundstage, gaffers, boom mics, and floodlights. After the hike, a few of us drove to a small lake where your friend Jack set up a telescope, and we waited to catch a glimpse of the fledgling eaglet, whose parents had forged a temporary nest in the brambles. Here's what I remember. My stomach rumbling as we took turns gazing into the eyepiece. I wasn't thinking of eaglets, but julian apple pie. I was going to have mine a la mode with Dutch crumble crust. Notice how I've used assonance and consonants, the mimicking sounds of brambles rumbling, crumble, crust. But when that large nest rustled and the fledgling rose, its new wings flapping, and landed briefly on a branch, I forgot about everything I planned to do later, have lunch at that roadside cafe where we always ended up, the lively political discussion that would ensue, even the exquisite dessert, its perfect blending of hot and cold. 
But then, just as quickly as it had appeared, the little eagle dropped back into its nest out of sight. Would this be a good place to address the reader, to instruct? Listen, when the beauty of a thing insists on being seen, you must give yourself over to it. For this is the shimmering everything, the moment and its volumes of unwritten poems. But here's the part where I make my confession. I lied. I never saw that eaglet. The stupid guy I was dating left his backpack at the trailhead, and I, being even stupider, drove him back instead of letting him take my car, going with you and Jack to see the bird. But everything else is true. The lizard, the cafe where you told us of your miraculous sighting, the steaming apple pie. I saw you last month at a workshop you taught. It never occurred to me, not for a second, that it would be the last time. You said, here's a trick, a really cheap trick. End your poem with a rhyme. Once again, that was Jacqueline Holton with uh, her poem for Steve Cowett and uh, using as many tricks as possible um, from that Steve taught over the years, uh, including ending your poem with a rhyme. Uh, just a wonderful poem, great lesson in poetry, and, and, and a great look at the, the influence that we leave as, as poets and people who, who care about poetry. I mean, there's a whole group of people who are, who are doing all the things that Steve taught and remembering him fondly seven years later now. There was the poetry lesson by Jacqueline Holton. And uh, okay, so we're gonna go take a quick break. And we're going to switch to our main guest today, Todd Davis, in just a moment. So um, just bear with me and be right back in uh, just a second. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. So I mentioned today's guest is Todd Davis. Todd is the author of seven full-length collections of poetry. Coffin Honey is most recent, which is right here and we'll be focusing on, plus Native Species, Winter Kill, and The Kingdom of the Ditch, The Last of These, Some Heaven, and Ripe, as well as a limited edition chapbook, Household of Water, Moon, and Snow. He edited the nonfiction collection Fast Break to Line Break, Poets on the Art of Basketball, and co-edited Making Poems, 40 Poems with Commentary by the Poets. His poetry has appeared in Ted Kuser's syndicated newspaper column, American Life and Poetry, and his poems have won the Gwendolyn Brooks Poetry Prize, the Chautauqua Editor's Prize, the Midwest Book Award, the Forward Indies Book of the Year, Bronze and Silver Awards, and the Bloomsburg University Book Prize. He teaches creative writing, American literature, and environmental studies at Pennsylvania State University's Altoona College. And here he is, Todd Davis. Hey, Todd, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you could be here. I mean, it's uh, you're one of those poets where I um, we published you a bunch of times, um, but I wasn't. We'd never like run into each other, and um, so I didn't. I didn't have and uh, didn't know anything more except for some of your poems. And I just love the cover of this book when it came in the mail. It was a, a beautiful. Let me put the cover up on screen. Uh, just this is Coffin Honey, and um, I love that cover. And then the cover being so vivid. Um, the uh, the poems inside are just as vivid, and um, it was really a treat to read this book last night. Uh, so thanks for being here, and uh, and and thanks for joining the show. Thanks for spending time with my poems. Um, do you want to start out with one of them? Sure. Uh, this book uh, is a book that was written out of grief. It's a book of lamentations for what we've done to the earth, uh, and it, it hopefully. Uh, serves the purpose of working through grief, but also through 
maybe urging some of us towards a closer intimacy with the earth. And so I'll start with um, Buck Day, second poem in the book, uh, as an example of that sort of grief or lamentation. And where I live in central PA, uh, hunting culture is very strong. And so the first day of rifle season, which uh, traditionally had been the first Monday after Thanksgiving, is a day where schools are off and many people go out to hunt deer, including it's, it's not a gender biased activity. Many, many women, many daughters go out. So this is about a daughter and her father, Buck Day. Downstairs, her mom cooks eggs and deer steaks, pours coffee in the bottom of a cup clouded with milk and sugar. Outside, her dad talks about a buck on his trail camera, steam rising from mouth, a reminder of the spirits that drift up from storm drains in winter. Her boyfriend works for the township. Like a blood clot moving through a vein, he walks miles beneath streets and tunnels of pipe. She looks forward to these gray days, to sitting quietly and saying nothing, to absorbing the cold. In the stand, her shoulder rests against her dad. She lays the rifle, precise as a ruler, across her lap. During sophomore year, when she cut herself, she used a razor in the bathtub. The water blurred red lines like a story with no end. The moon's nearly faded. Her dad nudges her. Forty yards away, a doe and spike figure eight the field. He whispers yearlings, says they'll be tender. On Sunday, the minister proclaimed no one could gaze upon the face of God. She wonders what the eyes or nose might reveal. If the burning bush stank like the lamb Adam roasted on a spit after he was kicked out of the garden. It's been two years since she stopped cutting. She rubs Vaseline where the skin knit unevenly, but pink ridges remain. She likes the taste of meat, but hopes they'll keep running. Her dad won't let her shoot at a moving deer. The doe doesn't stop, but the spike falters, halts and bends, mouth tugging at a fern. She squeezes the trigger. On the felt board outside Sunday school, Jesus waits for Roman soldiers to nail him to the cross. Her dad smiles as they walk to the animal, says, now the real work, and hands her the knife. Like field goal posts, the dead buck's legs splay. She scores the belly and lets the blade run up the chest, careful not to nick the intestines. Thomas doubted until he reached his hand into Jesus' side. With the deer's chest gaping, she touches the trachea and lungs, imagines the deer opening its mouth to breathe. It's easy to get lost in the body's house. That's why she carved openings in her skin. She cuts away the deer's heart, gives it to her dad, who slides the warm meat into a plastic bag where blood, still pooled in one of the chambers, begins to leak out. And that was Buck Day, once again from Coffin Honey, the new book by Todd Davis. And a really a really great example of, of just the, the feel of the whole book as well. It's a good poem to start with. Um, so, so I always like to sort of get the background of a poet. And, and 
so how is it that you came into poetry and and have you always been like an outdoorsman like what are the nexus of those two like were were you always a writer and always an outdoorsman so i always loved stories uh i was an avid comic book reader uh, all through elementary school and straight through college but uh if you had asked me in high school or even college are you going to be a writer i would have said i'd love to be a writer but i would have thought i'd be a comic book writer or a fiction writer um my father was a veterinarian uh, and uh, on both set sides of my family are poor Appalachian farmers, subsistence farmers, uh, Virginia and Kentucky. And that's where the outdoors comes in, that intimacy with the, the more than human natural world. Um, my grandfathers uh, and grandmothers taught me the names of many plants, many trees, to identify tracks, to understand the wild edibles uh, that I forage to this day for many wild edibles, but that all began with that sort of native no local knowledge uh, as a boy. Um, and as far as poetry, my father, who went to a one-room Kentucky schoolhouse, uh, his schoolhouse teacher had them memorize poems. He was born in 1929, so this would have been in the early 30s that he was memorizing poems. So at the animal hospital, when we'd be doing chores, he would recite poetry, uh, and and it, it was a blessing because uh, coming from poor farmers and a, a veterinarian father, the likelihood that I could see a way forward as a poet that would be not just <laughs> that would be allowed and acknowledged and even saw uh, as a good thing that came through the fact that my father had been uh, taught poetry in a one-room schoolhouse oh wow that's really cool and did he have a favorite poet to recite or do you, do you like what was the first poem that you like remember um him reciting <sighs> thanatopsis by william cullen bryant mm -hmm. um and you know it was the fireside poets of that late 19th century that there in early 20th century kentucky they were primarily listening to so william cullen bryant uh longfellow Folks like that. Uh, he, he loved the romantic poets mm -hmm. and would uh, quote Wordsworth and Keats for sure. Yeah, very cool. Well, uh, let's hear another poem. Um, what do you want to do next? Uh, as I say, there are a lot of difficult poems in this book. It's set in Rust Belt, Appalachia. And so the issue of race does uh, play a, a large role in the book. Um, I come from an interracial family. My brother-in-law is a black man and my three nephews identify as black. And um, I often think about the differences as they've walked through the world uh, compared to my sons. The town that I uh, grew up near, that, that my brother-in-law now lives in, was actually a sundown town when he and I were both in high school. Um, and so I'm gonna read another tough poem. It's called, What I Know About the Last Lynching in Jeff Davis County. What I know about the last lynching in Jeff Davis County. Actually, I should pause and tell you. So it's a persona poem. And there's a boy that runs through this book uh, who is the victim of sexual assault from his uncle. And that's the speaker in this poem. And his cousin, Mary Lou, is a, a biracial girl who identifies as black. So the speaker in this poem is this uh, white boy in Rust Belt, Appalachia victim of sexual assault. He's probably 12 or 13 years old. So what I know about the last lynching in Jeff Davis County, how it happened more than 50 years before I was born, how nobody in our family talks about it, 
How I learned in history class that white people strung up black people. How my cousin Mary Lou has dark skin because my uncle's brown as hemlock bark. How some still don't take kindly to my mom's sister marrying the way she did. How Mary Lou and me listen for the sound of water on the mountain and follow it under rhododendron. How our history teacher was suspended by the school board for saying blacks still get lynched when police choke them. How we catch and split speckled trout. How my uncle taught us this. How when we go to Dollar General for worms, a clerk trails Mary Lou up and down each row while I steal gum and two jawbreakers. How the orange wound of the fish's skin reveals the sweet pink we fry in butter and salt. How the dad of our best friend has a Confederate flag on his truck's back window. How when we suck on the jawbreakers, our tongues and teeth turn blue and red. How my uncle won't go into the bar on Main Street. How some say that black man had to die on the tree because he whistled at a white woman. How me and Mary Lou made a book about it. How my uncle still says yes, sir, to every white man he speaks to. How Mary Lou can draw near anything. How once she made a picture of a black and white warbler that's taped to the back of my bedroom door. How we never showed anyone that book. How I wrote the story so the man could come back to life like Jesus. How my uncle taught us to whistle like that bird. How we buried the book in a tin box in the woods. How we still use that whistle to warn if someone's coming. How I worry about my uncle when I think of our best friend's dad. How Mary Lou drew other black men cutting the man down from the tree. How the tree understood the man would miss the soft skin on the back of his daughter's arms. How Mary Lou says the bird is striped like prison bars. How the oak is rotting from a fungus now. How the branches keep breaking off. And again, that was what I know about the last lynching in Jeff Davis County uh, from Coffin Honey, Todd Davis's new book. And and you mentioned the characters, Todd, and, and, and there's a really interesting way that this book operates. So I was wondering how the book was conceived, because it feels like, as you're reading, it sort of feels like the poems are isolated about different people. And then it kind of the characters emerge into a very like novelistic story, actually, but in like a very like sneaking up on you way where you don't realize that that characters are repeating. Um, there's also the bird or the bear character that, that moves through the poem, uh, book of poems too. So, so how, I always wonder how a book like this comes to be. Like, like, did you envision this as something that you wanted to put together or did you have poems that were working together in this way and then you molded them into the book? I mean, it's a pretty long book too. It's, it's interesting to, to see the way it just moves through, um, you know, through poem after poem. Yeah. Um, so my six previous books, um, did coalesce around certain themes, certain obsessions or passions, images that kept reoccurring. Um, but if there would be anything that would uh, tie those books together, it would be more my millennial, matrilineal and patrilineal family trees uh, in Appalachia and the places that I've lived in. And of course, the more than human world in, in all these regions where I've lived. This book, more persona poems were coming early on. And that boy actually is from a, a poem that was originally a native species, Taxidermic Cathart Aura. Um, 
And a, a dear friend, the poet Katie Hayes, K.A. Hayes, uh, Carnegie Mellon publishes her books of poems. She's a professor at Bucknell and reads all my manuscripts. Um, with native species, she said, I want more uh, of that boy's story. And, and that poem did end up in native species, but he didn't leave me. Mm -hmm. And so that kept tugging me along. Ursus shows up. And at first, I did not think Ursus would be part of this story. I thought that might end up being a separate book, but that boy and that bear came together. And early influences on me um, from high school and college, long ago in the 70s and 80s, um, were things like Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, or uh, Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology. And I'm drawn to this idea of a collection of stories telling a broader story in a place. And so the poems did come individually at first, but the more these people lived together, I realized they were living in the same place and that their paths would cross and influence each other. And so it's the first book I've written like this. And it is different than some of those poets who set out to write a novel in verse. I did not set out to do that, but after a while I realized the stories worked better together. Yeah, that's really interesting here, and, and interesting that you mentioned the Spoon River Anthology, because I was thinking of that, too. It's, it's like these, these characters are living in one place, and, and then throughout the book, they merge and, and have interactions with each other, and, and there's a really organic feel to the way that the, it, it moves, but it does move as if, as if there's like a central arc of story in, in the place as well. It's a really interesting, uh, a really well-conceived book, I think. Um, the other thing that's really interesting are the, uh, the different styles, because there are a lot of they're longer, you know, narrative kind of monologue type poems. And then there are these short poems that are set off a little bit with a lot of white space around them. Um, and, and so I'm wondering about, about those, about the construction of those as well. Like, how did you like why why make the choices to, to write certain poems that way? So um, the book, and I haven't said this yet, deals with climate collapse. And what I've did want to try to uh, create in the book was the fact that climate collapse, while when you think of millions of years, yes, it's coming on quick. Our sixth wave extinction is coming on quick. The kinds of severe weather events that we've been seeing, fire seasons, it's coming on quick when you think about a decade, two decades, three decades, and this, the severity. Having said that, in our human frame of reference uh, of you know a life of 70, 80 years, Many places, and, and Rust Belt Appalachia is one of them, you don't see that effect as dramatically. And so, uh, you know, I often think people think post-apocalyptic books should be like uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy or, you know, the Mad Max movies and that it's just desolation. And, and no, there, there are places that are, are absolutely compromised and degraded, but there's still fecundity in other places. So the reason I bring this up the poems that you're mentioning, there are four poems in the book, especially that use a lot of white space and uh, not traditional lineation at all. And they're called dream elevator. And so there's four of them and they section off the book. And I was trying to get at the fact that um, post-traumatic stress disorders caused by that sexual assault on that boy is not unrelated to the post-traumatic stress disorder that the very, you know, the more than human natural world is experienced and we're experiencing as part of nature too with climate collapse going on. And um, 
So those poems are with the white space are trying to reflect that sense of dislocation, disassociation, uh, movement in and out of focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that that poem, Coffin Honey, which the the title comes from, is is so like that. It's so dreamy and and haunting because of the the space. It's like ghosts drifting in and out of 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 a story or something. It's really fascinating. Um, um, let's see. Do you want to read another poem? Maybe one of those. Do you want to read one of those? Um, you know, scattered kind of. Ghost I, I would poems. take a, a request from you if you want. Is there a particular dream elevator, or would you like me to read Coffin Honey? Um, yeah, sure. Do you want to read that one? That'd be good. Coffin Honey. Yeah, sure. Sure, I will do that. Uh, it's a poem in uh, what? Let me find. I, I I don't return to my poems very often. It is a poem in many parts. Um, 15 parts. Um, so I will just pause rather than say one, two, three. So. Which page did it start on? I'm trying to find it. Uh, page 31. Okay. And uh, and I was really thankful to Michigan State University Press and their book designer that they really allowed this poem to breathe uh, on the page, allowing a lot of that white space. And if uh, you or some of our listeners don't know, there's been a long practice in many cultures of embalming the dead in honey. Hmm. And so that's at the root of this poem too. So coffin, honey. Bees dying in hive beneath petals among engineered leaves and blades, the zippered pods of glistening beans, a chemical sun showering kerneled light. The beekeeper raises a bee box lid scrapes bodies from comb, wax filling behind fingernails, embalmed in stickiness. Honey made by the dead is sweet. The dead floating in honey makes a daughter weep. Fingers to lips, fingers to tongue, tongue crossing teeth, a boat ferrying the dead traversing the river of our mouths. Fingerprints, whirls of deceit left on whatever we beseech. The beekeeper's daughter searches for survivors, surveys the forest canopy for remaining swarms to gather and take back to her father. At the end of a branch, she finds striped bodies crawling over one another swaying in air, a sound like her mother's as the tumor consumed her. The first, times, the first time she's stung, she jumps, screams, runs out into a clover-drenched field where she thinks she's safe. A face made of bees flies to the edge of the woods, hovers there, turns and shakes its head in disapproval. As lungs fill, she hears a buzzing inside her, as if she's a bee flying to the center of the hive. The beekeeper finds the body in tall grass, green and shaking with wind, puffed with welts, purpled from loss of oxygen, cankered red from the shock of trying to help. In the cool of the cellar, in the dim light, 
just beneath the lip of the earth, he builds a small box, five feet by three, milled less than a month before from a beetle-infested pine. The beekeeper smothers the girl in streams of honey, only her front teeth showing, the same as when she suckled her mother and after her mother's death, her thumb. The stink of earth opened. Scratch of shovel and pick, repetition of ruin, hands keeping time with the clang. Late at night, drunk on mead, the beekeeper recites the story of a body fed only honey. How the girl who ate amber for each meal smelled of clover and goldenrod. How she shined like a thousand sunflowers looking directly into the sun. And that was Coffin Honey, the title poem from Coffin Honey. Um, just a haunting, haunting poem. And, and the way that moves through time, like I, the experience of it, which is really interesting to read because you sort of aren't sure what happened and then you realize sort of what happened and the tragedy of it. Um, and I, I didn't realize that people embalmed, um, you know, people in honey. So I, I, that seemed surreal and strange to me. I didn't realize that was an actual thing that people did. Uh, very interesting. Um, do you know much about the state of colony collapse disorder, which is, you know, what's what that poem's referring to? Um, do you know, did they figure out what it was? Is it nicotinoid uh, pesticides or is that just a hypothesis? Have they figured that out or not? Do you know? There is no strong conclusion yet. Um, certainly mites get into bee boxes. Certainly uh, we know different herbicides and pesticides are affecting our bee populations. Um, but no, there is not a complete conclusion at, at this point. Um, and there's another long section poem in this book called the, um, Cedars in the Pasture. And in that poem, and as well as in this poem, so I'm referencing real environmental issues with agri-industry. In that other poem, uh, I mentioned the way her father is farming a field and how it brings on an asthma attack for the young girl and how her mother has to use an inhaler to help her breathe. Um, and, and this is what I mean about uh, that post-apocalyptic kind of feeling, because this book does have apocalyptic poems in it, but I want people to see that in a sense, the apocalypse is already here that yes, you can still live on the farm, but asthma rates are going up. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we still uh, can be uh, caretakers of bees, but look at what we're doing outside of that that may be causing this collapse. And then it's always that relationship between the more than human uh, natural world and then the human world. Um, and I'm hoping there are poems in the book that still have some degree of, of hopefulness that we could get back to a stronger intimacy. The way the first peoples that lived on this continent uh, did and have continued to show us. Uh, I teach Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, quite often in environmental studies classes. And she's a, a citizen of, uh, of the Potawatomi tribe and says beautiful things about how we might get back to that shared world, that world of gratitude and reciprocity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, um, you mentioned climate change before, and there's a way that I think we... Um, 
uh, like fixate on climate change when it's really a system-wide issue. And, and so a poem like that and, and the asthma you mentioned um, addresses some of the other things. But but I feel like there's a way that like climate change um, super zooms um, all the other environmental disasters. And I always wonder why that is, because there, there's so much going on with, with pesticides and farm runoff and, and particulate pollution um, there, and just a whole range of, of problems that we're causing. Um, do you think... Um, I don't know, like, like, what do you, how do you, as an oppressor, you, you teach environmental studies, um, like, how do you decide what to focus on and, and what to, with, with so many problems going on, um, what do you think that, you know, some of them have maybe easier solutions than others, and, and so how do you conceive of, like, just wrapping your arms around how big an issue this is? So, it is systemic, and I would argue that it's based on a system of dualism that sees us as separate from the earth, uh, that somehow we could supersede or transcend, right, within uh, Judeo-Christian religious traditions is the idea of somehow we, that we would transcend, that we would desire to transcend the very world that gives us life. Um, when I'm teaching, the first thing I try to do is to get students to fall in love with the wonder, the mystery, the mysticism, the, the beauty of the more than human natural world. Because uh, I don't think we can save anything if we don't love it, if we don't want to be with it. Uh, and then after that, trying to um, not be overwhelmed, because it's so easy to be overwhelmed, um, and try to think about our own personal lives in relationship uh, to these problems. You know, I live in, in Appalachia. And so not very far from where I live, uh, only a couple hour drive. There are mountains that continue to be removed, mountaintop removal for coal. Um, and those mountains, of course, can never grow back. And, uh, and I have, uh, in many of my books, though, poems about the people. I want to honor the people where they're born. None of us chooses where we're born. And so I want to honor the fact that if you were born into a coal mining town in West Virginia or eastern Kentucky, this is the lineage that you're born into, the legacy. At some point, each person has to take personal responsibility about how they're going to live their lives. But um, how do we honor what people have done and then give them possible ways to still live in a place, but maybe not to harm the earth in the same ways? Mm -hmm. um, and another thing I want to ask about was um, just there's this whole tradition of nature poetry. And, and I wonder, I've often wondered, but I haven't really thought deeply enough to figure out what the answer is, why we're so drawn, like, what's the connection between nature and poetry? Like, what is it about, um, you know, about noticing nature that's so integral to poetry? I mean, we have this, you know, so many, you know, whole entire, you know, haiku tradition or, high, you know, there's so much um, with that interconnection. And there's something deeper there, I feel, but I can't quite put my finger on it. What, what do you think it is that draws us to nature poetry? I can only speak for myself, um, and I am one of these people that am deeply influenced uh, by the classical Chinese poetry tradition, um, only in translation. I do not read the original, but uh, I love how it communicates across time, six, 800, 900 years. Um, and what I would say is this, uh, through evolution, you and I are creatures that are absolutely connected to the most primal uh, parts of the natural world. Um, it's really only a very recent period of time uh, with industrialization and, and the movement forward with advanced technologies 
that we have even created the appearance, and I would say it's only an appearance, of being disconnected, that we can disconnect from the natural world. Um, the very air we breathe, all the food we eat, um, there is nothing outside of the earth and what it provides us. And so, again, speaking for myself as a poet, I, I feel like imagery from the natural world, metaphor drawn from the natural world, wisdom drawn from the natural world is something that can last. I, it's not that I don't appreciate poems where somebody talks about uh, their iPhone and some experience they have with their iPhone, but I often wonder to myself, how will that last compared to those Chinese poets who wrote 800 years ago uh, in the wilderness tradition in, in that country? So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like as you were talking, I was thinking about about um, there's a way that we're like even our 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 sense of awareness of who we are, our, our, our perceptions, everything. Um, we think of it as only being in our mind, but we're bodily, you know, embodied creatures. And, and, you know, there's more and more research showing that, um, that, that, that part of your cognition exists like other places than your brain. Like the idea of cutting your head off and keeping your brain in a vat, like the old science fiction movies is completely impossible because your consciousness lives in your entire body. And, and there's a way that we're like disconnected from that. And, and somehow nature ties us back into that in the same way poetry does because we we grew out of we flowered out of the soil that's all around us and we're kind of forgetting about it yes um so you know it's the legacy of cartesian dualism and other forms of western dualism that elevates the mind over the body or the spirit over the flesh and um and as you say so much research is demonstrating that we can't separate these things at all in fact most uh, uh researchers with forms of dementia and alzheimer's They'll say, well, what, what should I do to stave this off? Go vigorously walk or some other form of vigorous exercise for at least 30 minutes a day because we can't separate from the, the body from the health of the mind. Um, and I do th think, and I think of um, writers like Richard Love, Last Child in the Woods, what occurs to us when we go into natural landscapes, the fact that often blood pressure goes down, right? You know, stress levels decrease. Um, it's because of those connections. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, one of the memes I love, maybe the only meme I love, is when people say "touch grass." <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. Go touch grass. I love that because we should. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's true. Well, if anybody has any questions for Todd Davis, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. Those are the two that I'm monitoring, and I'll pass them along. Uh, but let's hear another poem, Todd. All right. Um, since we were talking about coal mining as well uh i'd like to read until darkness comes on page 104 and so it's about an iron foundry that was closing down in somerset pa which is again you know 45 minutes from my house or so begins with an epigraph from a news story a hundred year old gray and ductile iron foundry in somerset pa has issued a closing notice to workers according to local reports until darkness comes the white blades turn the sky, red-eyed turbans blinking away the danger of flying things. Small children float up over the Alleghenies, parents chasing the dangling ropes of weather balloons. It's hard to predict when a storm may blow through. A boy huddles by a bedroom window, wonders if his father knows where every deer hides on the mountain. It's his job to pull the sled when his father makes a kill. He's been taught in school 
The wind that circles the blades carries electricity to the towns where steel was made. Three years ago, his sister disappeared in the clouds, heat lightning like veins in the sky. She sends a letter once a month with a weather report and money their mother uses for an inhaler. Most of the coal dust has settled, but fires burn on the drilling platforms and the prehistoric gas smells like the eggs that spoil in the hutch when the hens hide them. The boy never wants to leave this place. Everything important is buried here. His grandparents, a pocket knife he stole from his best friend, the eye teeth of an elk he found poached at the bottom of a ravine. Yesterday in the barn, a carpenter ant drilled a hole. The boy bent to the sawed circle and blew into it. Breath forced down into darkness. He dreams each night of a horse galloping from a barn, mane on fire like a shooting star. He prays for a coat sewn from pigeon feathers, for small wings to fly over the tops of trees where the children land when their balloons begin to wilt. On summer evenings, barn swallows careen like drones, gorging dragonflies that skim the swamp. The bird's blue shoulders cant and angle, breast the color of the foundry's smokestacks as they crumble beneath wrecking balls and bulldozers, extinguishing the mill fires the boy's grandfather never dreamt would go out. That was Until Darkness Comes, again from Coffin Honey, Todd Davis's newest book. Um, so uh, we haven't really talked about um, about your writing process yet, and everybody always wants to know, um, you know, how you go about writing poems. Like, like where does the the idea for a poem come from? You know, do you do you write every day and, and sort of fiddle and noodle until a poem emerges, or do you say, oh, I'm going to write a poem about this today? Uh, how, how does the writing process work for you, and how much like editing goes into a poem? Uh, what's your process like? Yeah, I never sit down saying I'm going to write a poem about this today. Um, it's always an act of discovery. Uh, I try to be pretty disciplined about keeping a journal, but I don't mean a journal of the day, meaning a journal of when, when phrases come to me. Uh, some of my poems are much more musical, and so those are the ones that often start with some phrase in a journal. Um, sometimes just images come to me, and those get jotted down. And when I say they come to me, something I see, uh, another poem I read that is a catalyst for bringing an image forward, a memory forward in my mind, conversations I certainly have with family members and friends. Uh, students will tell stories in a class that will uh, sometimes lead to an imagined place for me in a poem. And then some of the more narrative-driven poems uh, start with a, a thread of narrative. And those often will take a month, two months, three months before I write a single line because I'll live with that narrative and keep thinking about possible ways uh, it could play out. And then how much, um, you know, how much, you know, a lot, sometimes people, you know, sort of spill out everything onto the page and then like shape it almost like you're, you're like finding a rock to carve afterward. Um, is, yeah. is that your process or do you, do you tend to know what you're, where you're going with it? And then, um, and then, you know, is, is there much editing involved? Lots of editing involved. Um, lots of editing for compression. Uh, certainly editing to change words in and out. Um, lots of editing with form. Uh, even though, you know, orally, we may not hear that as much. Um, 
it's it's on the page is important to me. And that was something when you talked about, you know, how poetry maybe is, is this bodily thing, right? Primal, primal, connected to nature. I think about that a lot that, right? Poetry is an oral art, O-R-A-L, out of the mouth. And it's an oral art, A-U-R-A-L, into the ear. That's why I think it's so important for poems to be read out loud. And so part of my process is um, each poem has been read out loud literally hundreds of times before it winds up on a page. Yeah, exactly. I did the same thing, and which is why I can't write in cafes or anything because I right. <laughs> had to be reading them out loud, or else it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, uh, let's let's hear another poem. I think we uh, we got to make sure we cover a, a good number. Sure. Um, trying to think which poem I would like to share. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read Mother. It's on page twenty nine. My mom is eighty seven and a half. Uh, she's a wonderful, dear woman. She's been in a memory care unit the last couple of years, which has been very sad in some ways, but I am grateful she finds happiness there in the moment, but she has Alzheimer's. And so this poem, while it works with the characters in this book, um, it is a poem that's written out of very personal experience. And it begins with a epigraph by William Stafford. And this is a perfect example of uh, a poem that began with another poet's words as catalyst. And Stafford wrote, after the animal that drank sound died, the world lay still and cold for months. And the minute I heard that line, I thought, yeah, my mother was the animal that drank sound. So mother, she drank sorrow, bringing my face to her neck. She drank the kingfishers clicking, pileated's knocking. She drank the clatter the creek makes when it rains, she drank frost heaves, widowmakers descending in wind. She chewed leaf duff, scratched away the, by the flowering of polygola and violet. She laughed at the dark cries of coyote and barred owl, rabbit bleats devoured. Before wings disappeared, she opened her mouth to the erratic flight of bats. When I fell from the tree, she drank the wound on my back spooned the sound of a rat snake eating mice beneath the porch. She loved cricket chirp, the metal of cicada scritch scritching. She swallowed the stomp of mules, the snarl of dogs. She said the red moon rocketing the sky was like kerosene on kindling, a fire to illuminate our insides. I asked how a river buries itself when it dies. She laughed and drank the weariness of such questions. I need to be more careful, to listen intently and learn to drink better. It's been months since I conjured her voice. Yeah, great poem. That was Mother, again, from Coffin Honey. Um, so so as, a, as, a, as a teacher of, um, of students, um, you know, one of the things that I worry a lot about is just the, 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 the feelings of... Um, of like nihilism and misanthropy when you, when you confront these subjects um, of, of the fate of the world. And, and there's a way, I mean, cause there's like two sides of it, you know, at all times, like, like we're destroying the planet, but we're the only people, the only creatures on the planet capable of noticing and caring at the same time, you know? So there's a positive aspect to that. Like we can do something positive and, 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 and in a similar way, like, 
you know, the sun is going to, in like three billion years, turn into a red giant and consume everything. And so everything we, you know, everything we might do is going to be dust and ash either way. So there's a way that if you like broaden the scale far enough, it's all meaningless at the same time. But there's a way that like focusing on how awful things are right now just just depresses people, right? And so how do you how do you work with with young people especially to confront that issue and, and not let them be depressed and nihilistic? Sure. So many things there, and and it, it, I am a person born of Western heritage, but um, I think we can learn so much from the native peoples that continue to live here. Uh, and have so much wisdom to share with us. Um, within different native traditions, there's the idea of, of the wisdom fathers or grandfathers that we find in different animal species. And so that was something when you said, I, I think it's true, we humans have made such a mess of things, but we can care and try to ameliorate or even correct those problems. I wouldn't say though that um, the animals and the trees and so on, all the other living beings, that they don't care. I think there's a real grieving within the natural world too with what's going on, but their ability to correct course, it's our technology that has got us into this place. Um, back to sort of Eastern wisdom traditions that we can learn from. And, and I really believe in learning from all traditions, not as appropriation and then claiming it as wisdom of our own, but that wisdom is there to be shared to help us live better. And so, it's very Western to think of end outcomes. And if you're not going to reach those ends or outcomes, then what, what's the use, right? And that's where that nihilism comes into play. You know, it's like, okay, if we can't, if the sun's going to go out, right? Uh, what's the use? The use is that idea of how do we live in a present moment always? And how do we live in a way of values that matter to us in that present moment. And that's, I spend a lot of time talking about that with my students in relationship to environmental studies, as well as other things in their lives, but definitely the environment. Because if the only reason that you would consume less, for example, is to save the planet ultimately, and then you found out you can't save the planet, I asked them that question. So then now you consume as much as possible. Or do you live in concert with other humans and other living beings in a way that reflects your true ethic, which you know, I'm saying for myself, at least, of trying to share with others and to consume less? So, uh, And then to celebrate those, those individual moments, I, I, you know, all my books will become dust someday. Uh, who knows if a single one of my poems will be read even 50 years from now by another human. I still would write the poems. Uh, you know, if the world's going to end, I still would go out into the woods and uh, touch a, a, a native brook trout, right, and, and marvel at its beauty. Mm -hmm. So not, not sure that necessarily works real well in a Western world sometimes, but that's sort of the message I try to get across. Yeah, is it, the, is it a Merwin poem or quote where he says that if the world yeah. was going to end, he would plant a tree? Yeah, I, I believe that's Merwin, but yeah, uh, in fact, my son Noah, who's a poet, uh, his book of this river uses the Merwin quote, you know, that, you know, we're, is it, we're saying, thank you, the dark though it is um, something like that. But it, it's that idea that, yeah, no matter what is going to take place tomorrow or the next day, how will I live this day based on what I find true value in? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so much is, is has to do with our frame of you know our, our frame of time and in, in the, the perspective that we're looking at. Um, so, as far as teaching, do you teach creative writing too? Do you teach poetry? Or um, so, so what? Yeah. Is, what is your sort of main advice that you give to students when they're going to write a poem? Um, is there is there some kind of you know, if you had, you know, have knowledge to part, you know, give to the, uh, the listeners here, what would it be if you could, if you could have an elevator pitch for your, for your philosophy yeah. for teaching? So, and it's based on the kind of poetry I value most. Um, so Robert Frost's old mantra, you know, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And that's where I, I try to convince or convince is the wrong word. I try to tease along <laughs> The, the path for my students, this idea that you should be writing towards discovery, towards surprise, because many poets, I think, and I was definitely one of them when I first started off in my uh, you know, undergraduate uh, education. Oh, I know what I'm going to write about in the poem. And often it comes out trite or cliche, very preachy. Um, Trusting the image, that's another mantra I have. Why? Because, I, I, again, the poetry that I value, including that classical Chinese poetry, has to do with gestures towards mystery. I write in my poem what I can write in my poem, the detailed physical world, those images. That goes into the world I, I, of the poem. But that's only an implication of or a gesture towards the mystery that I can't solve. It's the reason, you know, we humans... Big, big philosophical questions. What are we doing here? <laughs> is there anything before our lives? Is there anything after our lives? Um, is there some higher power in the universe? You know, big philosophical questions. They can't be answered in a poem, but gestures can be made towards them. Um, and then just the constancy of reading. You know, you ask, do I write daily? I do. I, I revise, you know, some form of writing. Revise, start a new draft. But reading is writing. And so just reading, 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 reading the best poems you can get a hold of, reading poems that have content that you do connect with. Because it, it is important for us to read poems, especially later in our journey, uh, I think from other perspectives, other cultural contexts. But I think for uh, an artist starting out, they need to find poets who are writing out of a similar context that they're writing out of so that they can see how their lives, their places can be transformed in art. Yeah. Yeah. Great answer to that. Um, let's do, I think we have time for maybe two poems, like one poem, a question, then another poem. So let's, uh, let's close out. What's the, the second to last poem you'd like to read? Um, uh, I'm going to end with two short poems. Um, so of this world on page 106, and this is for those nephews I mentioned, and it's a poem that is dedicated to them there on that page, Bryce, Brandon and Brock, and it's called of this world. And, and it answers some of the questions you were asking earlier too. Um, this is a poem that in a sense was a, uh, a sermon to myself because the book is such a, a dark and harrowing book, not to forget that beauty that ecstasy that's still there in this world. Of this world, a warbler beats its wings at the blueness and a brown boy raises an arm in praise. Somewhere the tongue of God laps water where the wind crosses the surface. On the logging road, a rough grouse drums 
and the bodies of the dead ripen with stories. The true passage of time is marked by what birds and trees perceive. Too often I sought to kiss grief's lips when I was young. Now I'm old. It's no pleasure to watch the chickadee peck a winter-killed deer. A dove flies down from the moon, and a woman lifts a baby to a breast. On the mountain, a bear eats two berries, imprisoning the honeyed darkness on the tongue's underside. How did I ever forget all the worlds in Upper Room? That was Of This World, um, from Coffin Honey. Um, and, and sort of along the lines of that poem, one of the things I was wondering while reading this book is, uh, do, you, do you think we would be happier? Like, I think one of the things that's probably going to happen, maybe not in our lifetimes, but eventually, is there's going to be a big coronal mass ejection that wipes out all of our technology. You know, you mentioned the road already, but I think we're going to have the road for a while, and then we're going to be back to tribal you know, hunter-gatherers, because, I mean, it's just going to wipe everything out. Do you think we would be happier that way? I mean, that's what the life we evolved to live, and we're in such an unnatural state. Um, do, you, do, you think, um, do you think that's what we're destined to be, or do you think we can overcome that and find happiness in this world, um, you know, moving forward as a species? I hope we can find happiness in this world moving forward as a species. Um, I am not a Luddite. Um, I wish, uh, so I've, I've grown up among Mennonite and Amish communities my whole life in the, the Rust Belt regions where I've lived. So just up over the mountain in Sinking Valley from where I live is a large Amish community. I like their idea of how they interact with technology. They ask, how will it change their society, their church, the, the families that are part of their church? And they make the decisions about technology that way. Um, the Iroquois uh, tribal people would talk about making a decision. The elders would make a decision based on seven generations forward, how it would affect seven generations forward. I think that's so wise. And so I am so thankful for the medical technology we've created. Um, there are so many technologies that have allowed us to live better lives. And I do not want to ignore that. I think what happens is we take those technologies and then turn them into some of the most ridiculous hedonistic sort of pleasure oriented uh, activities and without any sense of in the consumption of that. So for example, computer technology requires uh, all kinds of mining extraction, right? For the precious metals, uh, no matter where you're getting the energy, it's, it's leaving a footprint. Most of our energy still in the area I come from is either uh, natural gas from fracking or coal. So there's all this cost and then I think about the ways we use most of our technology. It's not those life-saving or life-bettering things like uh, medical technologies. It's quite often something pretty banal. So I hope rather than uh, move back into a time that's so primitive that we don't have ways to extend our lives and make our lives better, um, that we learn to live in closer concert with nature still with our technologies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great answer too, because it's just, th there's so much about life that was miserable for almost the entire history of the human race, yes. I mean, for refrigeration, um, you know, <laughs> you know, th and just things that, you know, not having to worry about famine every winter, yeah. um, you know, how much the population died just every winter and, you yeah. know, childbirth and all that stuff that we take for granted. And then, you know, like you said, we wasted on frivolous things as well at the same time. 
Um, but uh, let, let's finish out with that last poem. What's the last one that you wanted to read? I, I, it's going to be the last poem in the whole book. And we haven't had any Ursus poems, but uh, I, I do want to tell folks that are listening, there are over 16 poems where Ursus the bear weaves in and out. But the last poem brings up Ursus and his mother. His mother dies very early in the book, but uh, Ursus persists. And so... Yeah, why don't you, before you do that, why don't you explain that a little bit about the, how that character came into be? I meant to ask you about that. And since sure. it didn't come up in a poem we read yet, I, I forgot about that. But it's an interesting sure. character that moves through the book. So where I live um, in Pennsylvania, we have one of the largest black bear populations anywhere in, in uh, the lower 48. Our black bears grow very large because uh, of the fecundity of our ecosystem. So um, we have black bears that do reach over 900 pounds. Um, so the size of many grizzlies. And, uh, and so I have encounters with bears and I love the tradition of wisdom that comes from uh, the bear in many native people's worlds. Um, and so bears have shown up in all my books. In fact, there's a, a, a poem in which I compare a bear to a Buddha up here in the state game lands from a few books ago. About halfway through this book, I was starting to have doubts how Ursus fit in. And this is going to be three years ago, this uh, Father's Day weekend. Our mountain laurels all in blossom on the mountain at that time. And the male bears moved through it for rut, trying to find a female to mate with. And I was in the thick of mountain laurel on the mountain and a, a black bear that was well over 600 pounds came out of the mountain laurel and we were all of maybe 15 yards from each other. And usually there's a real surge of adrenaline. There was none. I was completely calm. He seemed completely calm. We stared into each other's eyes for about 30 seconds. And then he just, he, he turned and walked back through the laurel. And, and I took that as a sign that I should keep writing about Ursus. And, uh, and that's where Ursus becomes a healing figure in this book as well. And so the poem is Sitting Shiva, and it ends the book. If you find the bones of a bear, sit down and stay with them. The dead desire our company. Touch each one, scapula, tibia, ulna, even the tiniest bones of the hind and forefeet, the curve of every claw, just out of sight, a thrush will sing. Birdsong is a way to speak in secret. Find comfort in the arbutus that whitens each march on the old logging road. Wait until dark. A full moon will rise from the bear's skull, showing what she thought of us. Hold the moon skull in your lap. Stroke the cranial ridges. You may see your dead father scaling the talus to the blueberry field where this bear ate, mouth sated and purpled by the sweetest fruit. Your mother will be in the room on the second floor of the house, packing and then unpacking a box of your father's clothes. It's hard to give up this life, but we must. Others are waiting behind us. And that was Sitting Shiva, the last poem from Coffin Honey. Just a wonderful book by Todd Davis. Thanks so much for being a guest today, Todd. Um, a lot of people have mentioned already that they already, during the show, have ordered the book. Um, I hope more people do because it's a really good one. Um, and I appreciate talking to you. This is important stuff we've been talking about and uh, a lot to learn from, from this book and from, from your insight. So thank you. Thank you. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, take care. All right. Okay, and that was, uh, yeah, once again, Todd Davis. His newest book is Coffin Honey. Um, you can find more of Todd Davis's work, all seven of his books, 
at um at toddaviscoet.com that's Todd Davis poet just like it sounds toddaviscoet.com so um so do pick out pick up a copy of uh, Coffin Honey and his other books Native Species Winter Kill and The Kingdom of the Ditch is the other one that I have read which is a great one oh Some Heaven too I think I read Some Heaven as well but um but yeah so so pick those up and uh and visit toddaviscoet.com now we are going to go to um take a quick break and then go to the open lines and before we do let me see if I have this set up right. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking about um, possibly switching the time for this show. So, so we switched to the Sunday mornings, um, and for me, it's noon on the East Coast, um, and I'm not sure. I, I feel like I'm not quite awake <laughs> Sunday mornings. So, if if so, I have a poll. If you go to rattle.com/poll. It has a list of Rattlecast broadcast times. Rattle.com slash poll. Go there sometime and just put, put your favorite time down there. Because I'm thinking about moving it maybe to the afternoon or the, the evening again. Um, or if you like this time, it's fine too. There's, a, there's pros and cons of each. Um, I, thought, I, I thought maybe it would affect the uh, number of, of viewers live because people in like Europe and Indian places like that can join in. But looking at the numbers, it's kind of all the same no matter what time we do it. So we might as well just do it at the time that we enjoy the most. So go go ahead and fill out that poll. There's also one for the Critique of the Week, which I might move later as well. So uh, go to rattle.com slash poll and let me know what you think there. Um, and now, like I said, we're going to go to the open lines. And uh, let, me get the, um, let me get the link, which I'm going to paste. This is a Zoom link. I'm going to paste it in the... Um, I'm going to paste it into the chat windows and then pin them. So that is the Zoom link. If you'd like to share a poem and only if you'd like to share a poem, uh, please join us here. Otherwise, you can just stay and keep watching wherever you're watching. This is just the Zoom link for people who would like to share a poem. Uh, you can share a, a, a prompt poem. You can share a news poem. You can share whatever you would like. Um, if you'd like to do that, come over on Zoom and just pop in. When I go to you, share your poem. And then uh, you can go back to the original stream so you can see them on screen and, and get the whole uh, full effect of that. So the Zoom link is there on YouTube. The Zoom link is here on Facebook. And um, last week somebody asked, too, if I could put the phone number, which I don't have handy, but I will go find it really quickly. And I'll put, put that in there, too. So whoever was waiting for the actual phone number, I'll do that as well. But feel free to join us over there on Zoom. And I'm going to take a quick break. And we will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, if you'd like to join us on Zoom to share a poem, I forgot to say, email your poem, too, to openmic. That's openmic at rattle.com. That way I can show it on screen as you read it. Uh, for people watching on YouTube and, and Facebook, of course. And if you're on Zoom, share a poem when we get to you. It's your turn. And uh, and then um, you go back to the original place that you were reading it or, or watching so then you can see and, and uh, see the poems as we go. So let me um, get into the open lines. So so we have, uh, we have Tuesday's poet here, Matthew King, who has uh, another poem about Ukraine. So this is one of the weeks that most of the poems were about Ukraine. And... Um, and we have uh, this poem, Shevchenko Shot in the Head, a sonnet by Matthew King. And Matthew King's right here. Hey, Matthew. I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, been a, it's been a long time since I've been on a Rattlecast. I used to, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I did the open line a number of times. And uh, 
to do it since I think it's been about two years since I've been on. Yeah, it's been a while. So, it's great to see you again. And of course, we good had to talk your, to you again. Yeah, and we had your um, your um, your poem for for the Ephrastic Challenge as well. So it's good to see you and in, in your artwork. Oh, I think you dropped. Are you still there? Hmm. He seems to have frozen. Okay, so we'll try. We'll see if we can get Matthew back in a little bit. Let's go instead to uh, Dick Westheimer on the open lines. Um, Dick was the last person to go last week. Let's get to him this week. Hey, Dick, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Love, loved the interview. I had so many questions, but I didn't have time to type them into the... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really important topic. I mean, the way that, you know, just the way the world's going and, and what our, our place within the place that we've made, you know? Well, and there's so much... Well, I'm, I'll let the interview stand, but it was it was, it was was terrific. Uh so uh yeah yeah i appreciated it very much uh, and so, on our first sort of blue day blue sky day in about uh three weeks it just felt good to have po- poetry that was regulated of the of the outdoors yeah it's just this time of year too i mean we have you know the winter's finally over in our mountains here and and we're hiking again and playing again and the flowers are coming out and it just that spring feeling is really uh really rejuvenates your whole life to, to just feel that that warm air for the first time in a while i don't do you have petrichor in your soils in your western soils that that sort of like thing that's activated by spring rains and oh uh, yeah mm-hmm. i think so i mean i'm not sure technically but um but we have we have the pine scent because uh, we have all these jeffrey pines everywhere and so um when it rains um and, and then and then the pollen starts to drop. There's just this, you can smell it as you come into town, like you come over the mountain and then you're like hit with this beautiful pine smell, which is what, what we look for. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it I'm, I'm sure it has narcotic effects, even if you don't notice it. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, so what was it that you'd like to share? Um, if there's, t- I, I sent in two poets respond. Is there time for, for, um, I think for we're just going to have time for one this week because, um, I was going to say, yeah, so that's a good reminder to tell everybody only one poem this week. Cause I have to go a little bit earlier than normal. Okay. Um, I'll read the one about witness the warring Lords and the forever price. Okay. And so, so I have it here. So what, um, do you want to introduce it? What was yeah, that? just, um, uh, the, I saw a a before you know a before and after photograph of um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky the after being as he was viewing the the carnage in Buka. Oh yeah, I saw that. And, like he'd aged, you know, years. Yeah, and just not just aged, but the the impact of what he was seeing was was. And you know, I thought about this whole notion of how many folks are are both witnessing and bearing witness, and what what. Yeah, just that phenomena. Mm-hmm. So, and I went back to the original person who was punished for bearing witness in um, Lot's wife um, here. So, yeah. Um, so this is called "Witness: The Warring Lords and the Forever Price," and my epigraph is from Genesis uh, nineteen thirteen. Uh, For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against them before the Lord has become so great that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And I just got really mad when I read reread that part of Genesis about the Lord sending, you know, this whole history of the Lord sending destruction. In the beginning, it was Lot 
and his daughters and his unnamed wife, those damnable angels, Sodom, Gomorrah, Buka, Erpine, all the same. Slaughter, panic, outrage, shame. This is the stuff of endless lists, the kind and number of disjointed bones, the chromatone of burning flesh, the breadth and width of skin as measured in pain, kids skinned, knees not kissed, scabs unpicked, toys crushed, the unnamed babies who will never go to war, the named ones who will. I rip that page from my embattled Bible. Overhead, a lone goose sounds like two. Call and response, call and response, so alone. I look back to the remains of that terrible book. There, the limitless victims and the nameless wife who I will call Selah. Her life as witness as she considers her immolate sisters, the lone goose, the good, the vagrant, the lascivious and chaste. Her gaze stays fixed on the crime, forever tied to the chasmed sky. She sees the hands that reach from the graves, the broken crutches, how blue the fire burns, how blackened the flesh, the dirt beneath the fingernails of the dead, the sins that are sins, the sins, I'm sorry, the sins that are not sins, the sins that are the gods who worship their own idols, the idols made in the image of their savage gods. Only Sela looks back. She knows the price. She chooses to be a pillar of salt. Yeah, great poem as always. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. And you can feel the emotion in it too. Witness the warring lords and the forever price. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, and now I saw Matthew King was back. Let's get back to Matthew King if I can find him. Oh, he dropped again. Okay. Let's see. Well, maybe maybe Matthew, I guess he's having some connection issues. But um, if not, well, I'll share the poem and play his recording if uh, if we can't, let's go to, um, let's go to um, Audrey Friedman. I think we did Audrey toward the end last week too. Hey, Audrey. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. Okay, I have one that um, was in progress this week. It might be finished. It's a response to Ocean Wong's fragments. Mm-hmm. So there are a bunch of disjointed. Um, pieces. Uh, was that uh, before? Let me find it. Was that submitted to Poet Respond, or did you email it to me? Uh, I emailed it to you. Okay, let me I, let's see it. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, there it is. I see it. Okay. 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 Reflections. Right. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Reflections. A response to Ocean Vuong's fragments. One. Are we wobbling? Do the magnetic forces that keep our earth tethered ever get disrupted? Two, when marionettes speak to each other, does the wood hear their words on a cellular level? Three, December 19th, 1960, 
USS Constellation fire at the Brooklyn Naval Shipyard. 50 civilian workers killed, 300 injured. Dad went to work that day as on any other weekday, but he had to become a link on a human chain to find light and unburnt air. Four, do scarlet nails do a better job at raking skin to rawness? Five, is my life a sequel to my parents' story or a first edition? Six, the heron's head dips forward and gazes at his own reflection, which he thinks is a contender to fight for the fish. Seven, September 11th was the day we were humbled by heaps of smoldering debris. My students were frightened. What will happen to us here in Rhode Island? Good thing it's so small that most don't know what it is, where we are. The terrorists won't find us. Don't worry. Eight, danger goes incognito. Nine, I was born in the year of the tiger. Tiger, the western sky is your music. Which of the winds sings our songs? 10, my father was an electrician wiring the World Trade Center. Some monuments fall. In the garden of perfect brightness, you gaze knowing that invisibility is blinding. Imagine breathing to die, to open up night's sky. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks so much for sharing that, Audrey. That was Reflections. And uh, and I have to read, I haven't read um, Ocean Vaughn's Fragments. I'm not familiar with that, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah, thanks for sharing it. You're welcome. Okay. And uh, let's go next. Let's see. But let's see. Do we have Matthew King back? Hey, Matthew. Are you there? Hello. Hey, Matthew. Is it working now? I hope so. Uh, I got a new laptop here, and that was actually the first time I've tried using Zoom on it, and it froze, and I don't know. Anyway. All right. Well, you're back now, and it work, it's working again. So so right. to start, so this poem, um, Shevchenko Shot in the Head, it's going to be Tuesday's Poets Respond poem. Um, do you want to explain uh, what, what it's about and, and the new story that inspired it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it, it basically started with this picture, um, which I saw on Twitter. Um, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a picture of a, a monument of uh, the Ukrainian 19th century poet and artist Shevchenko, um, which had been <laughs> shot right, you know, sort of on the, I guess, the right side of his forehead, sort of looking like he'd been executed. Um, and it's a picture, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the town in, uh, Ukraine. Um, but the, the Russians left this town and, uh, among the destruction that they left behind, there was this monument, which in the picture, it looks slumped over. I don't know if it's actually slumped over or not, but it's, you know, got a bullet hole in its head. It's a very striking picture. Um, and I never thought that I would write a poem about the war in the Ukraine because I just sort of have felt like I've got nothing to say about it. Um, but this picture was so striking that I had to write something about it. Um, 
and then I, and I started writing this poem with the intention of um, uh, sending it for poets respond. And then I realized I don't know if this is even in the news. It's just a picture that I that I that I saw, and so I looked. I looked to see if I could find it in a news story and I scrounged one or two up. And uh, um, of course, you know, it's not really news um, that, uh, that, you know, that this monument of this poet and uh, he's a founding figure of Ukrainian culture, I guess. Um, It's not really news relative to everything else that's, uh, that's gone on in in the Ukraine, but, uh, and so, you know, it's not a widely covered news story but it's a very striking image and uh, obviously one that is particularly of interest to poets. And um, I mean, the, the thing that struck me about it to me and the reason that I really started writing a poem about it is because it looks meaningful that it's a, a poet and symbol of Ukrainian culture that's been shot in the head, sort of execution style. Mm-hmm. And it looks as if it means something. And to me, it's kind of a symbol of how everyone looks at this war and, to me the whole thing just doesn't make sense and i don't know how to make sense of it but everyone looks at it and makes sense of it in their own ways and uh you know you look at this picture of this uh of this monument shot in the head and it's instantly meaningful to you but what does it actually mean and uh one thing to me that is so striking to me about it is it looks like something that might have been done on purpose but it's the kind of thing that happens when violent forces are unleashed uh, when people are allowed to do violent things, then they'll take it out on anything anywhere, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah, yeah, it could, it could have been a complete accident framed by someone who noticed and a, a photographer, too. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it, and it's such an in- interesting thing to notice. Um, just so everybody knows, the um, if you, you know, since this is in the news, it qualifies even if there, whether there's a news story or not about this specific story. So you didn't have to worry about that, but we found the one article, and people have seen, this is from Barons.com, the article in the photograph. Um, why don't you go ahead and, and read this um, Shevchenko shot in the head by Matthew King right Shevchenko shot in the head when soldiers shot Shevchenko in the head you'd like to think they meant something by it you'd like to ask what poem had they read that moved them so you'd like to know why it inspired this you suppose symbolic act of violence If to them this man meant more than all the other things that they'd attacked, then you'd have something to forgive them for. You hate to think they didn't even mean to do it, that his broken bust got caught in crossfire, one more face hit sight unseen. Your own bowed, breaking head can't bear the thought the soldiers might have shot him just for fun, the same as they might have shot anyone. Yeah, yeah, great couplet and... and sad couple of two sad truth in that poem thanks so much for sharing that it's a, it's a great sonnet appreciate it appreciate you joining thanks. us today matthew thanks a lot yep take thanks. care it was matthew king with uh, tuesday's poem shivshenko shot in the head that's going to be uh, rattles.com's poem of the day on tuesday for poets respond now let's go to um i saw somebody who was new who was it where was it patricia mcmillan i don't think patricia's been on before I don't think so either. Hey, Patricia, how you doing? Fine, thank you. It's really nice to um, to meet you over the over Zoom. It is. And where are you calling from? I'm in Chicago. Ah, literally. Um, and I've been submitting to Rattle for years. In fact, the poem that I'm going to read 
uh, which this is just prompted by um, coffin honey. Ah, coffin honey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, many things were prompted by coffin honey, but this is the first one that I grabbed. So it's from a series um, about Mr. and Mrs. God. Um, and it's called the gods create heavy weather. Uh, did you uh, send it to me by any chance? I did. Um, I sent Tim at rattle.com. Oh, so Tim at rattle.com. Ah, okay. There we go. Got it. The gods create heavy weather. God said, from this one tree, you may not eat. Then hitched his horse up for a buggy ride. It was unseemly warm for March. The heat had burst the blooms of heaven's magnolias wide, fried Mrs. G's jonquils, while down below Earth's baseball teams sweated through training camp. And lo, there came a hole in the ozone. God's carriage wheel dipped and bent. His iPhone flew from his hand and Mrs. G knew Eve couldn't be Adam. Oh yes, Eve had done something extra naughty this time, like ship her toxic e-waste offshore to be stripped of rare earth metals by bare naked kids. So God said, let there be messy weather. And Mrs. God said, call it climate change. And so it was. And there came hail and rain and angry birds and earthquakes, fire and frost. And on opening day, such ice and storms, Earth's catchers could not see their mitts before their masks. And every tender white and pink blossom of all Earth's fruiting trees turned black. Frost killed the fragrant heralds of her pears and apples, plums and apricots, her old King David's and her maiden blush, her pippins. Her old trees withered and died. And everywhere on earth, the farmers cried. Oh, great poem and great reading, too. I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Patricia. Thanks. My pleasure. Yeah, good stuff. Hope you can join again soon. Thank you. Yeah, that was Patricia McMillan with um, The Gods Created Heavy Weather. Or the Gods Create Heavy Weather. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Okay, and now um, let's go to Spartacus. Spartacus hasn't been on in a while as well. Hello. Hey, Spartacus. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and you, Tim? Um, and so what do you have that you would like to share? I have. I don't have a poem, but I have a points response poem, which I emailed and I also submitted. Okay. And let me... it's called Cultures. Okay, let me pull it up. Let's see. Oh, that's right. Spartacus with an A. Okay. Um, which one was it? Leading vultures. Okay, I've got it. And so um, what was this about? And, and um, just introduce the news story that, that it was about. So um, I read these stories of people from Mariupol um, about what is going on there. And I found their words really emotional and poetic. And in a way, um, they, they made me feel um, really moved about what is going on there. Because, I mean, the, the events are happening and we listen about them, but the people are the ones that make the stories and know what is uh, really going on, especially the residents there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Well, go ahead and read it. Bleeding Vultures, whenever you're ready. Yeah. Bleeding Vultures, visit me in my center during the night when I dream of Mariupol. My language has become my luggage. I prepare my words for a long journey every morning. Then I cross the road 
outside my house looking for water and bread. The fog is thick. I can see the blossoms of magnolias, not the road. It used to be full of voices. That road. Breathing sunlight, that road. Voices of mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. Now it is a silent cold space for dying and nothing else, nothing. Oh, I keep repeating to myself. I miss so much the aroma of frozen grapes that were forgotten on the vine. I miss the smell of the dust of the summer. I miss the voices of fat frogs looking like small Buddha statues that used to sing during the rain and reminded me that I'm not alone. I miss the safety I had like a bird in a nest. I like giving bread to birds when they approach me. I like giving a chance to every voice that has been and will be silent for a long time, sleeping in the earth. I have already given up hope to end an unjustified war, infecting every heart like a virus between men that once were children and starved skeletons that once were bodies in uniforms. You know what they say, it's no biggie. Hope dies last, but I think that hope dies lost in a city that looks like cemetery of torn buildings, a maternity hospital, a theater, a block of, lot of flats are no longer, no longer what they used to be in Mariupol. Everything changes. The children will become hunters. The hunters will shoot birds, defending their temporary space with their defenseless sad song. The hunters will be soldiers shooting at us. Every soldier, another cuckoo in the nest. The other birds will migrate away from their nest. The flowers will fill the rain. The water will return to the ocean. The flowers will be there when the birds are flying away. The planes will bomb my spring, my little friend. You get me and I get you. But the flowers that bloom without words will never ask how God created them. The flowers will never ask why my best friend will stay forever in his destroyed apartment. A dog approaches me. The dog barks. A church bell rings from a church filled up with God, but no people. A church near houses, houses near houses that look like figures of lovers as they dive into darkness. Houses that become giant lighted matchsticks. When I ran out of candles during the night, the city of Mariupol is going to be always there, even if destroyed. The city will be in me. That city will always be me. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Spartacus. I love the way that it drifts between, um, you know, different perspectives. That's bleeding vultures. Excellent poem and, and great to see you always. Thanks so much. And thanks for today. Yep. Th take care. Thanks, Okay, next up, let's go to, uh, let's go to Joy Stahl. Um, I'll ask Joy to unmute. 
Hey, Joy, how you doing? All right. Yeah, it's great to see you. This is the first time, you know, you've called in many times, but it's the first time you've been on the Zoom, so it's good to see you. Yeah, Yeah. I'm in my classroom grading. Oh, excellent. So I've got two computers going here, and um, I did want to mention that the Alice in Wonderland poem that I wrote last October, or actually October 2020, for the Rattlecast, Mm -hmm. uh, won a a prize at our local community college, and they had the reading uh, last night. Oh, very cool. Yeah, congratulations. That's awesome to hear. Friday night. Yeah. And (laughs) so I went over and did that and met a bunch of poets and talked about Rattlecast. Very cool. Well, yeah, hopefully uh, more people are coming in because of that. I appreciate it. Um, and you have another prompt poem for this week. So I didn't think I mentioned the prompt poem because I was like thinking about that poll. The prompt was a woman walks down a dirt road late at night, which you conveniently made the title. So I didn't have to look it up <laughs> with the yes. phrasing. <laughs> but I uh, yeah, that was a prompt. Because so, I literally wrote it right before. I did not have any inspiration whatsoever. I knew I wanted to write about this topic for um, Post Respond. And then right before the Rattlecast, when I was pulling up the youtube and getting it set up i looked at the prompt one more time and the two things came together in my head and so i literally wrote it in the 10 minutes before we started today excellent well those those hot off the press poems are usually really good so let's hear it all right a woman walks down a dirt road late at night a woman judge katanji brown jackson walks down a dirt road the halls of congress which are honestly more muck than dirt. Late at night, the night of prejudice and misogyny. A woman being heard for confirmation, public defender defending herself against accusations couched as questions. Appellate judge appealing the judgment of men. Had she been a man, a person of male gender, had she been white, with peaches and cream complexion, the resume would speak for itself, qualifications barely questioned, confirmation a mere formality, probably completed in hours instead of days. A woman keeping it together in the face of microaggressions. Had she cried or screamed like previous nominees at their hearings, her confirmation would have failed, double standards on display. A woman, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, walks down a dirt road, the road of the average American, late at night, shining hope into the darkness. Excellent. I love the, the way you went with that metaphor. That's perfect. Uh, a woman walks down a dirt road late at night. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. And that was Joy Stahl, again with a prompt poem for this week. And let's let's go to let's go to Jennifer Elise Wang. Hi. Hey Jennifer, how are you doing today? I'm good. Um, and what is it that you would like to share? Um, if it's okay, I've got two haikus. So yeah, one two haiku. On that, that counts as one poem. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, so and by the way, the <laughs> we we pay um, we pay poets um, per page when it's haiku, so uh-huh. so it would count as one poem too. Um, if anybody yeah. was wondering if we, uh, you know, when we publish 10, <laughs> we can't pay them all $200 each, but, but it's yeah. not to put down haiku. <laughs> so anyway, this is two haiku by Jennifer Lee Swang. Is there anything yeah. you want to say about them or do you just want to go so, ahead? Uh, the first one is based on the prompt and it's 
actually um, kind of the haiku version of a short story I wrote about um, the fox woman, uh, a huli jing, where they're, like in Asian mythology, there's a lot of seductive women. So it's based on that and my adventures walking alone at night. Oh yeah, very good. So, okay, go ahead. Um, so a, si- a slight woman alone. You ask if she's all right. A bloodstained grin. Creepy. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And then the other one? Uh, the other one was published, ooh, it's been maybe 10 years ago. It was when I was teaching English in Japan. Um, there was a haiku contest uh, for us um, English teachers. So uh, this And this one first prize. So uh, the silent loner who never raises his hand one day speaks. Hello. Oh, excellent. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing those. Those are great. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. Okay, next up, that was Jennifer Lee Swang with Two Haiku. And let's go next to Caitlin Buxbaum, if she's still here. Caitlin? Yes, I am here. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So, um, as I mentioned in the chat, um, I didn't want to, I did do a prompt poem, but I combined it with a prompt for another magazine Mm -hmm. um, and I want to send it to them and I want, I'm not sure how they feel about showing it. So I'm like, well, if I just read it, it'll be fine. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, sure. And I mean, probably I will make some revisions because the deadline is still like a month and a half away or something. Sounds good. Have you ever heard of anybody caring about that? Like, like actually caring or just like rumors? It it just feels like an urban legend to me that anybody cares, but I don't want to, I don't want to like ruin people's chances of publishing a poem if, if they do. So So I wonder about it. More and more journals these days in their submission guidelines on their website say Mm -hmm. things like we only accept previously unpublished works. This includes on personal blogs, websites, social media, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, you know, <laughs> some, some of them are more specific than others. You yeah. know, when they, when they just say on, we don't take on, or we don't take previously published work, um, or we only take unpublished work, if that's all they say, mm-hmm. then I'm like, doesn't count. They won't <laughs> know about Rattle. Um, but if they bother to go into the specifics of like, don't post it on social media mm-hmm. or your blog, I'm like, well, see, this maybe is video. I'll... It's a totally different medium. I, I don't know if right, you were at the Jimmy. Right, but they'll see it, and yeah. it's archived. Is the point? Yeah. So, do you, did you? Were you at the Jimmy Pappas reading uh, a couple of weeks ago, where that woman at the end um, mentioned? I wasn't. Okay, so she she said, what was she? She works in. Some kind of like more a different a different genre of of, of journal publishing, but okay. they consider things that are that are appearing on blogs and things as preprints. That's just what they call them, which is great. Like as someone who that reads a lot, of, yeah. So she'll be like, we we don't take we we accept preprints or whatever, and, and she'll consider that if you post it yourself somewhere, or if you do it something like this, or like at a conference, it's like zoomed. They just say that it's like a preprint, and then you're the actual publication, which I much prefer that. I think the thing is that we get caught up on the definition of publication. Like there should be, mm-hmm. there should be multiple words. Like it just means to make public, but it means so much more in different ways. And there's formal late formalities, and there's different copyright slices and things. Mm-hmm. So I think we just get well, caught right. up on our vocabulary. But and that's why when they specify things mm-hmm. like not on social media, then 
you know, I try to, I save those, what I do is I save those poems for a different journal, mm-hmm. you know, the poems yeah. that, that I read on here. Um, Cause there are some that have been accepted, but I just, I would hate to jeopardize my relationship with a journal mm-hmm. because they're like, yes, we want your work. And then they find it somewhere and they're like, oh, not cool, man. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. so I don't know. It's, it's always, I change my mind on it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can hear. It. Anyway, let's hear this poem. So we're just going to listen. So let's hear it. Yep, it's called I Never Liked Westerns Anyway, which may be a confusing title, but maybe you'll figure it out. Okay, I Never Liked Westerns Anyway. The path beneath the woman's feet is green, but he beckons to her from bedrock, mind miles away, night dark eyes cloudy with will and weakness. As their hearts wander the cosmos, evening blinds their eyes with pitch perfect song which is to say, obscures the journey as much as the destination, a threnody in itself. Love is no mother, father thunders with some kind of envy, but the moon is only a forgotten guard against the black, a placebo for damp and rainy souls. She looks down, sees the grass turn to gray dirt, up and away, the rock reduced to rubble. Home calls her back alone. And that's it. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for that. And what was that, what was the title again? I never liked westerns anyway. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Caitlin. Mhm. Thanks for letting me. Okay, take care. Yep. Bye. Bye. Okay, let's go to Shanhu Lee. Hello? Hey, Shanhu. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you. Um so what is it that you would like to share? I sent you uh, in email mm-hmm. uh, the Dinger Peninsula. Yeah, I have it right here with a great photograph too. So to explain what this, <laughs> uh, what what people at home are are looking at. Yeah, so this is the photo I took when I was uh, taking vacation in uh, County Kelly uh, in Ireland, two thousand seven or mm-hmm. something, a long time ago. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's the Dingle Peninsula? Yes. Very cool. Well, let's hear the poem. The poem is a prompt poem, but uh, um, it's about uh, some um, uh, pandemic uh, dislocation and uh, some lockdown and isolation, you know, memories. Okay, go ahead. It's a very short poem. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Tinger Peninsula, cicadas and the crickets cry aloud, compose a vagish orchestra. Garden spider sways between layers of silk net, like any older woman shuffles in the moonlight. Camellia blooms, creep mitre jaded. Centuries call me from the woods. On this September night, air smells like the sea, as if I was on the Dinger Peninsula. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it takes me right there. I really wish I was there too. Thanks for sharing that, Shanhu. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Okay, and now let me see if I have any people. I have to admit more people into the waiting room. Okay, and let's go next to Mike Bales. Oh, wait, actually, I think I, let's see. Let's go to Mike Bales. Hello. 
Hey, Mike, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Um, <clears throat> I loved your poet today. <clears throat> yeah, it was good stuff. First poem. He's got poems that kind of mix different stories together. I kind of like different stories mixed together in poem. Mm-hmm. The second poem reminded me of a poet, Dor Malik, who had an awesome poem once about a gay man who was lynched in Shadron, Nebraska. Oh, People yeah. might have heard that. That was a big news story. The, the um, Matthew Shepard? I that? think that was it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, 20, I 25 pre- years ago now, I think. Um, it's a powerful poem. I've worked in Nebraska, but never around Shadron. Probably the closest I worked was Valentine, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. This poem set in good old Wisconsin, like the favorite state I worked in. Um, it's probably a reflection of me, but you're prompt as a woman walks along the side of a dirt road late at night, so it's a woman character. Uh, I emailed it to you. It's the key, Keeper of the Roads. Yeah, I have it up right now, so go ahead and read it whenever you're ready. Keeper of the Roads. A woman who walks along the side of a dirt road late at night. At a, She drinks at the bar and leaves her reflective gear in the company van at the hotel where she stays. Silhouettes of trees and contours of fields shadow her way back. Fireflies dot the sky, much as the ones she and her father watched when he was alive. One look back shows the bar as an island of light. Another song, another dollar placed in the jukebox. And the same one question, does your job pay a lot? She shakes her head no. A whisper, a desire whispers to make this land her home. But you can't, this woman of one in many places. Maybe she could grab an apron and wait on patrons, and maybe they like her. A man in tight jeans bought her a beer when she complained about the cars that would not stop for a sign turned red. Or maybe she could go to the university 30 miles away. Or maybe she could stay for the weekend and see what happens next. But she gets a call saying another road must be fixed in the midst of a land called somewhere else. Oh, excellent. Love that ending. Thanks, Mike, for sharing that. That was great. Thanks. That was fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. Take care. This is Mike Bales uh, with uh, Keeper of the Roads. And let's go to uh, Phil Stern next. Hey, Phil, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Uh, we don't have any video. I don't know if uh, if you want to just have voice. It's fine, too. I can't quite figure it out. <laughs> there's a little on the lower left. There's a start video if you want to start it. Oh, but it, it's okay just having your voice, though. It, it just doesn't seem to work. So Okay. It's not the uh, the button. <laughs> <laughs> well, no problem. So what was it that you wanted to share today? Okay. Uh, I missed the last two sessions, first of all, I wanted to say. And uh, thankfully, we, we have your YouTube. So I really appreciated the last two guests. And uh, I wrote prompts for all of them. So at any rate, I, have, I do have both prompts. But you only wanted one poem? Yeah, well, they're both very short. So go ahead. I have... Uh... Oh, okay, good. Yeah, you could do two, because they're, they're short. Okay, thanks. All right, the food prompt. Uh, first one is called medium rare, and that reflects the fact that this food is seasonal. Only in winter. Golden boxes on the shelves. My Malamars. Malamars. <laughs> 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 If this is a countrywide phenomenon, but um, I love Malamars and they're only available in the winter. 
Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I think because the plant can only make them when it's a certain temperature or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, the second one, yesterday I smiled that I didn't have COVID. Let us celebrate taste buds, garlic shrimp, butter dipped lobster tail, pick up your fork, candied apples are waiting to be plucked. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing those. Okay, well, the other one is the woman. Oh, okay, here we go. I didn't scroll down far enough. Yeah, go ahead with this one, too. This isn't, isn't long, either. A woman walks down a dirt road late at night, carrying a towel and a memory. She is on her way to the swimming pond where she lost her virginity in moonlight like this at 16. She came from many miles away to her childhood home to revisit her pedestaled past and maybe connect better with the envious sister who stayed. Road dust rises up into her face. A painful pebble invades her sandals. When she arrives at the pond, she remembers now how the boy had fumbled with her bra strap and really did not know what he was doing. Yeah, great set of poems. Thanks so much for sharing those, Phil. It's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Yep, take care. Too. Okay, let's go to um, let's go to Nivedita. Hey, Nivy, how are you doing today? Hi, Jim. I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing excellent. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Uh, extremely last minute <laughs> <laughs> write up of uh, the usual, the prompt poem, like I always do. And when I say last minute, I actually mean last minute because. We went out this weekend and I literally came back at like 10, 15 p.m. India time. So I couldn't even catch the show, which I must do tomorrow after work now. <laughs> but then. Uh, well, so. great. Well, I'm glad you could join us. Hope you had a fun day wherever you were out. Oh, it was good tiring, but good. I yeah. enjoyed it. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, let's hear this, uh, the prompt poem then. A woman walks down a dirt road late at night. When the stars are obscured by the afterhaze of the day's vehicular block, when the apartment windows are shuttered tight, when the shop doors are padlocked shut, when the cats prowl and dogs growl, when the city sleeps. That is when she steps out, wide awake, heading in to do an honest day's work. She walks down a dirt road hedged by wildflowers, past the red barn and the gabled farmhouse, till she reaches the shade of a large oak under which waits her midnight rendezvous. She's been meeting him and feeding him every day for the past three months. And he, despite being of a retiring and reticent nature most of the time, actually waits for her here. She opens her tote bag and plucks out the remains of today's dinner, some chicken wings and a juicy apple, and leaves them for her um, friend. Her friend with his shiny coat, his piercing eyes, his long ears. After the friends look at each other one long minute, she resumes her walk and soon is lost in the afterhaze of the sleepy city, while down that dirt road, her friend, the coyote, begins to munch on his dinner. Oh, that was great. I love that. Didn't see that coming. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> and um, do you have coyotes in India? Uh, no, no, <laughs> we don't have coyotes in India. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think so, but I was just, I was just wondering after that because you, you never know, I guess. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, no, we don't. Okay, <laughs> well, take care, Nivi. Uh, talk to you soon. Thank right. you, Tim. Yep. Bye bye. Have a great day. Yep. Have a good night.
Thank you. It was Nivedita Karthik, of course, where the woman walks down a dirt road late at night. And let's go to Guy Chambers. Hi, Kim. Hey, Guy. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Yeah, I worked on this poem here. It's kicking around for a while, banging my head in for a while. And I finally come up with this idea on this. I call this poem Night. On and in a dream, a woman walks down a dirt road late at night. Far to the sight, into the twilight, I wash thoughts entwined to the distraught, flustered, baffled, obscured. Street lamps burnt out, trees on about, staring, no doubt, as the leaves chant with the breeze. Cumber footsteps, heavy, weary, shuffle the dirt in a dust that never lies. He's just tethered around the ankles. Faceless voices as to the known, common all the shadows, shucking one's choices. Spiders crawling along the road, snakes eyeing all the tall grass, crows squawking, wolves howling, coyotes growling, flesh crawling, hands shaking. Hairs on ends on the back of the neck. To the dismay, the road opens up to the bridge upon a steep ridge. The bridge to the other side. Eyes widen, heartbeat thicken, feet shivering. Wake up! Wake up! It's not your time. Thank right, you. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much. It was night by Guy Chambers. Thanks, Guy. I have another small poem there. I don't know if you have it there. Um, just a little oh, microphone. Oh, yeah, very short poem. Yeah, go ahead with that, too. I see that there. Yeah, this is for this time here. This poem came I have written this a while back, but it's called War. A bullet ricochets. A child ducks. Oh, yeah, too hey. appropriate for now. Thanks for sharing that, too, yeah. guy. Okay, thank you very much, yeah. Jim. Yep, take care. Bye. Bye. And then, um, let's see. So we have Angela Gardner here. <laughs> Hey, Angela, how you doing today? Good. Hold on. Um, I don't usually do Zoom with you. <laughs> I did on the Skype, and then all of a sudden I see the Zoom thing. I'm like, oh, my. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we switched. Awesome. Yeah, you haven't been on a while. We switched to Zoom just because everybody prefers it now. And so, um, you know, Skype has some benefits. It's better video quality, but, uh, but everybody prefers Zoom, and it's just easier. So we're just Zooming now. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um yeah, I just have, um, I did have two, but I could just read the one. Um, I guess I'll read the prompt poem because you've just had so many, you know, um, about the Ukraine war that maybe, mm-hmm. um, maybe just read the traveling home. It's quick. It's actually three haikus oh, um, that yeah. I did. Yeah, okay, cool. Go ahead. So this is a traveling home. I have it up. Okay. Traveling home. The dirt road has rocks. She trips in her five-inch heels. Absence of streetlights. She picks herself up, shakes off dust on her black dress. The gate has a lock. Late to visit the stone. Wait for him to give a sign. See the sky's brilliance. Oh, that's great. I love that. Traveling home. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. Thank you. Yeah. 
have a good day. Yep, <laughs> and I, I would prefer the nighttime. I already voted. But <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm going to see the votes. And that, way, that way, everybody, yeah, I like it better too. I just, I, I like the idea of doing it in the morning, but I can't wake up. Like I'm half asleep for the first half, <laughs> half an hour of the show. So maybe, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what people vote for. Um, but well, anyway. Either way, it's, you know, I'll try, I'll, I'll, I try to make it when I can, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, but I'm just, I, it's good that it's recorded that I can look later. So yeah. That's yeah. I that's mean. always a, the idea. So thanks so much, Angela. Always Thank a pleasure. You. Yep. Take care. Always a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Okay. It was Angela Gardner, of course, with Traveling Home. And we have Arlene Spencer here, but I can't seem to connect. Um, let's see. I'm trying. I think it's just not connecting for Arlene. So I think uh, I have to get going anyway. So let's do, um, I think we're going to do the uh, Megan and my prompt poems at the end of the show from now on. And, And we also have a poem from Colin. My son wanted me to share one. So we'll do that really quick and then we will get going. And sorry to everybody who... Um, you know, Ted and everybody else who sent poems in that asked me to read. There are a bunch of them here. Um, Carlton Johnson. I'll try to get to him next week. Um, um, Zachary Honeycutt sent one he asked me to read. Um, Sharon Ferrante, Carla Schwartz. We'll, we'll do these uh, next week because I got to get going. Um, but let's do the prompt. So once again, the prompt, of course, was a woman walks down a dirt road late at night. And for Megan's poem, that was... Um, that was, was her title. So here we go. This is Megan's prop home. This is a woman walks down a dirt road late at night. Oops. There we go. Woman walks down a dirt road late at night. Behind her, a padlocked house with wallpaper the color of bruises. Ahead, the road becomes a question mark. She raises her hand to answer. It's a great little poem from Megan. Great to see Megan back after two weeks, a little little two-week vacation. Um, excellent. Hopefully she'll keep up writing a poem every week. And then, uh, this was Colin's poem. He wanted me to share. This is, Oh, how the seasons go. This is our seven-year-old son, of course. And, um, oops, hang on, let me, Oh, how the seasons go in winter, the cold, slow winds blow in spring rivers flow and light makes them glow in summer. A man is playing, although he needs to mow. In fall, it seems the leaves know when they're going to fall low. That is Colin's poem, Oh, How the Seasons Go. Thanks for sharing that, Colin. And if you're only listening, there's some great, great visuals of this tree changing as the seasons change. So thanks for sharing that, Colin. Always a pleasure to to, uh, be able to share some of their poems as well. And uh, lastly, here is the uh, Saiku for the week. And this was... um, this article here, this is from Universidad Bonn, the University of Bonn. Never heard of that, but it's the Bonn, University of Bonn somewhere. Does it say where it is? It does, um, I don't know. It sounds German, maybe. I'm not sure, but this is a study here. Um, study shows fish can calculate. Researchers at the University of Bonn um, published an unexpected finding. Um, chichlids and stingrays can perform simple act addition and subtraction in the number, a range of one to five. This has been shown in a recent study by the University of Bonn, which has now been published in the journal Scientific Reports. It is not known what the animals need um, their mathematical abilities for. And so this reminded me of uh, the famous story of, um, um, what was it, the um, clever... 
the the horse there was a horse that could count back in the about uh, clever ned is that was the name i can't remember the horse's name now but um they they thought this horse could count and it was the inspiration for um the mr ed show what was the horse's name i'm drawing a blank all of a sudden but um so they would say like what's two plus two and the horse would stomp 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 four times and everybody would cheer and he'd get a little piece of carrot or apple or something and it took years before anybody realized that all that happened is the horse realized that if he would stomp until people cheer they would uh give him a carrot and so um that is that is uh what happened with the horse and this is what they did kind of with these stingrays but here is the Saiku for this week. So, so maybe, I mean, they did this whole complicated thing where they took, took objects and they taught them that if they were blue, they should add. And if they were yellow, they should subtract. So they'd show them like four squares that were yellow. And then if they went to the three squares that were yellow, um, they would uh, get a piece of food. And if they went to the wrong one, they wouldn't. And so they learned. And then they eventually could test them by doing different mathematical things using these colored, colored shapes. And, um, and it showed that the fish could calculate, but I'm a little skeptical. Um, anyway, this is the Saiku for the week. Based on this, Stingray trapped in a tide pool calculation. Stingray trapped in a tide pool calculation. That is your Saiku for the week, and that is your show for the week. Now, next week's guest is going to be Kate Gale. And note the special day. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Um, we're not super religious, but we like to do fun, you know, pagan type holiday stuff. And so we're going to, um, we're going to medieval times and we're doing a, an Easter egg hunt too outside. So while well, we usually be doing the show. So, um, so we're moving it to Monday. That's Monday, April 18th, um, 5 PM Eastern, 2 PM Pacific time, a difficult, totally different day, totally different time. So be sure to put that on your calendar. And the guest for Rattlecast number 140 is Kate Gale. Now, Kate is the uh, publisher and founder of Red Hen Press, the best press um, for literature in Los Angeles. Um, she's also my publisher from American Fractal a long time ago. A bunch of the guests, Kim Stafford a couple weeks ago, was on Red Hen Press. Um, just a wonderful press. They publish poetry and fiction. So we'll talk to her about that. But she has a new book, The Loneliest Girl, which we'll be focusing on. Um, and that just came out this spring. That is Kate Gale, Rattlecast number 140. And I forgot to say your prompt. Your prompt for next week is going to be this. An aphorism is a concise statement that contains a bit of wisdom or wit about life, such as if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or honesty is the best policy. Write a poem that is either based on an aphorism or contains one or more aphorisms. So that's going to be your prompt for this week. Write an aphorism type poem. And once again, next week's guest, Kate Gale, on an unusual time, Monday, April 18th, 5 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime. Have a great Easter if, you're, if you celebrate, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.